First Timothy. So we um, are ending this year working through um, a topic that really we we don't spend enough time talking enough about. Quite honestly, um, when you when you look at it, and this this issue of, of of money and and generosity and joy and how they all collide. And when you just look at it, it's you know money occupies a very significant part of our lives, right? It's it's almost like you're living uh, to get more of it. Um, you're constantly worrying you don't have enough of it. Uh, it's, it just has it just has a central place in our lives and in our world. It's like cream, cash rules everything around me, Wu Tang. Like you know, it's just, it's just there, and it would be foolish uh, to not know or assume that God has thoughts regarding money and resources and those things, knowing that it has such a significant place in our world and in our lives. And so over the next few weeks, what we want to do is we want to say, man, God, what, what is your insight, your perspective on these on this issue? And how can we create greater alignment um, towards your thoughts, your will, conform to who you are and your truth? That The word for that is maturity, by the way, Christian maturity. How, how can we create alignment and conformity, application to how you see our resources, but not in this weird way, but in a very freeing, generous, joyful way. And, and so what we, what we said, even um, just to name our series, it was like, yeah, let's call it Be Rich, um, and, and, and really say, man, how can we get a right perspective on what rich actually is? First Timothy 6 um, actually forces us to confront that question, which is why we're starting there in First Timothy 6. Um, again, don't let my tears depress the mood. Can I just say that? I feel like, I don't know if you, yeah, just let me just, let, let the mood be the mood. Amen. Um, but we have a question to really just kind of resonate um, today and to next week and the week after that and the week after that and prayerfully for the rest of our lives. And the question is, if, if you could attach rich to any area of your life, what would it be? Like if, if, you, had, if you had the ability to say, I want rich acts in every area of your life, what would it be? And would it be the thing that God wants? One of the things that we're going to see as we wrestle through this text, I really just want to get to the text, is that God wants something for us, not necessarily something from us. And the elephant in the room, whenever you're getting a church section, like um, you get in a church section or church church scene or a church environment, a Christian environment, is whenever the issue or the conversation around money comes up, it's always like, oh, they want something fr- fr- like from you. And the reality is, I don't want anything from you. Let me just say that personally, Lee Pastor, I, I really don't want anything from you. I want some stuff for you. Um, and, and what I want for you is what I think God wants for us. And I really cannot think of a better place um, but then to start, then, um, then First Timothy, First um, Timothy is is, is rich, haha, pun intended, and it, and it and it really has some. Yeah, you, know, you laugh at that one. Finally, um, it has some distinct movements um, through this text as well. It, it really gives a caution to be aware of and that you kind of get this this pretty robust statement and a picture, and then a call to action, and then a case that Paul is going to make it. So that's actually going to be the movement of our time is this caution, the implications thereof, this statement that kind of serves as a hinge for what Paul is talking about, this call to action, and then this case that he's going to make that changes everything. Let me read, and then we'll get right into it. Um, 
1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 reads like this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's arrogant. Prideful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus, or so that, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, God's word. There's a lot here. Let's get into it. So this is a letter by a guy named Paul, missionary, apostle, leader in the church, to a young pastor. But though it's written to a young pastor, there's a lot in there for us. But this young pastor was pastoring a church similar to our church, the church in Ephesus, where there was this collision of culture and this collision of spirituality and this diversity ethnically. So you had this Jewish Gentile contingent coming together in this place, Ephesus. But not only was there ethnic diversity there, there was economic diversity there. In fact, the way this church started, what you see in Acts, is pretty profound. That as Paul is ministering to these people, they come to know the Lord. They believe the truth of the gospel, that there's a life which is truly life. And they repent from their former life and they find Jesus. And what they do is those who had ties to a lot of spirituality in the form of books, they started burning all of them. They burned all of their books. Now, that wasn't just a symbol of of their spirituality. That was a symbol of their wealth. So there was some economic diversity. They're like, man, I found this Jesus and I'm giving it all up for him. And, and so Paul is writing to this young pastor in this super diverse church, in this diverse city full of disparity economically. And he's saying, yo, I want you to speak to a particular contingent of people within your community. It's rich. And he starts off. Charge those who are rich in this present age. Several implications there. First implication is around rich. Now, I know for a fact that when some of y'all heard that, y'all like, I get to check out because I'm not rich. Right? In fact, some of y'all are like, can we go back to talking about emotional healthy stuff and Jesus' perspective on that? Right? No. (laughs) Whole counsel of the world. But When you checked out because you're like, I'm not rich, I'm not one of those, let me help you lock back in. Do you know that if you are American, Chinese, or exist in Europe, that you are part of the richest contingent in the world? Did you know that? Let me give you a stat, very crazy, especially, let me just go to the United States. Nearly half of the world's population, more than 3 billion, live on less than $2.50 per day. Half of the United States lives off of $50 a day. So so if you live in America, you're rich. I just want you to know that, that like, I know that's like, man, no, I'm looking around. But this is not for the exceptional elite, like the 1% of the world that occupies 80% of the world's resources, which is wrong. And I'm not talking about some Marxist philosophy. Just wrong. That's foolish. So it's not for the exceptionally elite, the Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Gates of the world. It's not for the 
the moderately successful. And so you, you may have some more entrepreneurial leanings to you and you create your own business, buy low, sell high. So you got reservoirs of wealth. It's not for those people. It's not the exceptional elite. It's not the moderately successful. It's not this ambiguous middle, which does exist in most of America, where you almost are like, man, I'm not there, but I'm not there. It's not for them. And it's not even for those who are there. It's for all of us, no exceptions. And so while contextually he may have been talking to a select few in Ephesus, if you are in this room right now, he is talking to you. He's talking to us, the rich in this present age. That's one implication is we're not exempt for this. In fact, one of the one of the things we're going to say at the end is we want to make sure we have the right standards of measurement. We're not exempt for this. The, the, the second part of this is this present age dynamic. What he gets at, there's so many exceptions here, but, but, but one of them is this idea that there's a current time frame that he is literally speaking to, which implies that there's a, another age or another time frame that's coming. Thus, if you're in this present age, there's a way that you're supposed to engage with the riches that you have. Now, I would argue so many of the implications speak to the fact that there's uniqueness to this present age. So I'm born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, came of age in the 2000s. Now, in the 2000s, man, yo, like there was essentially four types of cell phones that existed. And they were tied to four types of people. There was the Nokia phone, the one that plays Snake. That was the phone I had. <laughs> it's the free phone that you get, right? Then there was the Razor. Do y'all remember the Razor? Anybody remember the Razor? And it was like for those who were a little bit more professional, a little bit more cooler, a little bit more affluent. And they had a Razor, Motorola. Then you had the two-way. You remember the two-way? And that was really a minority phone. Can I just say that? Like, it was like, you, know, you had the two-way phone. And you saw Jay-Z back in that video. So you're like, I want to hit you with that two-way. But it was for those who were more entrepreneurial and nature hustling. So they had a little bit more. And then you had the Blackberry especially the Blackberry Pearl. You didn't put your hand. Amen. <laughs> Maybe you did. Maybe you did. Not, no, no judgment. But those were for your, your, your upper echelon, the business people. That's kind of how I identified it. And if you really had money, you had two phones, right? One for the plug and one for the low. And, right? Yes? But nobody's walking around with those phones right now. Does that make sense? Nobody, because it's a different age. And so what he's saying is it's like, there is richness and people in a particular age. They have certain resources that are tied to this moment in time. And the implication thereof is to make the most of the age that you're in and to leverage the age that you're in for the ones to come. I charge you, Timothy, to charge those who are rich in this present age. And then the charge is a caution and a call to action. But the caution is this. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Loaded. He says, you in this present age who, who have this unique experience of wealth, I'm going to charge you not to be arrogant. Now, throughout the scriptures and life, what, what arrogance does is it minimizes God's grace and it maximizes my effort. That's arrogance. 
Arrogance is minimizing God's grace and maximizing my effort. That's arrogance 101. Now, the way arrogance shows up with wealth is you start to deny the truth and you assume a level of chronological ignorance or arrogance. Let me explain. Acts 17, 26 says this, that that God established the boundaries of your habitat, the allotted time periods in which you were born. So we're born where we are because God saw that it was fit and good for us to be born where we are. It is God's design that you are born in America and not some war-torn country full of abject poverty. Nigerian, parents are Nigerian, light-skinned African, caused fights growing up, but I am African nonetheless. And in Nigerian history, there was this civil war, the Biafran War, and people died. And, and it was a revolutionary moment. My father fought in this war. I wasn't born in that war. So I don't have that same experience. God's grace. So if you were born into a wealthy family, you didn't do that. It happened to you. God's grace. And what he, so so what, he, what, he's, what he's saying is in charge of them not to be arrogant, he's saying you need to have a right perspective of how you got to be where you are. God's grace. But it's, it's not to diminish effort, it's just to elevate God's grace. First Samuel says this, the Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. First Samuel 2, 7, God's grace. Matthew 5, 45, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's grace, God's common good and his divine grace goes to people. And if in the outworking of God's common good and his unique grace, you have more wealth. That's not because you are good. It's God's grace. So what he says is you need to charge them to have a right perspective of themselves and a right perspective of the world around them that leads them to humility. Grace. But he doesn't just say... Resist, because that's this charge, this caution means to be aware of and resist. He doesn't say resist arrogance, this posture where you are maximizing your effort and minimizing God's grace and God's hand and God's wisdom. He doesn't just say that. He says also charge them to resist, resist by not setting their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's very interesting. Again, there's a lot of layers here. Riches. He's not focusing on currency because, again, currency changes with the age that you're in. He's not focusing on currency. You, you know this. I know this. We know this instinctively. Like, we don't, like we don't take money showers unless that's your, the job that you have. You know what I'm saying? And, and we, don't, we don't sleep on money beds. You know? and, and the times where it does happen, that's because it's for, like, comic relief or somebody's, like, trying to flex really hard. But we don't do that normally. You're not going to walk into a house and there's hundreds on the bed. It's like, well, this is my blanket. You don't do that, right? It's, 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 it's not necessarily about currency. It's about what the currency is exchanged to get. And what the currency is exchanged to get 
reveals or exposes values. Track it with me? And so, so, so he's saying, listen, don't set, don't set your hope on riches. The uncertainty of riches doesn't mean don't set your hope on the dollar and not the euro. He says, don't set your hope on the things the dollar or the euro is trying to provide because they're uncertain. What's beautiful is the scriptures never diminish the value of money. They just say they're not invincible. They're uncertain. The things that money provides doesn't actually bring the certainty that you're looking for. And that scene in that word that he's emphasizing, hope, that hope means longings in our heart, desires in our heart, dreams that we have. So, so, so hopes are longings that we want fulfilled, desires that we want met, and dreams that we want realized. That is a hope. And what he's saying is, don't fix the fulfillment of your longings, the meeting of your dreams and desires on the uncertainty of what your money can buy. That's common sense. That's ain't a lot of spiritual there. It's just common sense. But the spiritual dynamic comes with the why. And he builds that out. And he starts to build that out by doing this. Read with me. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't set your hope on these things. They're, they're not certain and they can't, they can't provide what you really want. Set it on someone who is certain and who does provide what you really want. God. This is such a powerful statement. You have this caution, but this is such a powerful statement. He says, on God, and then he describes God. He richly provides everything for joy. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything, every square inch. God looks at every square inch and he says, mine, that's mine, I own it. Every square inch. But what the scripture is encouraging us towards is this glorious truth that God looks at every square inch and says mine, but he also looks at every square inch and says it's for joy. That, that God, God provides everything in our lives for experiences of joy. Man. The lie of the enemy, the lie my heart believes willingly and regularly is God is anti-joy. That is just, that is the lie. And the way I believe that lie is because I am prone to fix my eyes and fix my heart on what I don't have. As opposed to enjoying and experiencing all that I do. This has existed since the beginning. Garden of Eden, full of every tree, pleasurable to the eye, to the body, and to the soul. And this serpent comes in, speaking to this man's wife, whispering good nothings into her ear. And what he whispers into her ear is, you have everything but this, therefore you have nothing at all. And she's like, man, that makes a lot of sense. You're right. I actually don't have everything because I don't have this. And the reason I don't have this is because 
God said, and God said because he's withholding. Therefore, God is against me, not for me. Therefore, if God is not for me, he's actually against me. Why would I be for him? I need to secure life for myself. Do you see how that works itself out? Yet the scriptures are constantly putting in front of us a picture of a God who is overtly generous, who says, I created all of this. And within everything I created, within every square inch, you could experience joy, get busy. You want to add a little bit more salt on your food? Get busy. I created it. NACL. It's chemistry. You know, he just, he looks at all of this. And he's like, yo, enjoy. And Christians have this weird thing right now where we live in the extremes. And so I'm watching people either get into this woe is me mentality or this hyper experiential mentality. It's almost voyeuristic. And at both extremes, there's no joy. There's no joy here because you're afraid to ask God because you'll look like that person. And there's no joy here because it's built on stuff and experiences, not a person. It's uncertain. Whereas when the hopes, longings, desires, and dreams are set not on what currency can create, but on the God who's created all, provides all richly, abundantly for our joy, then we're able to be content, which is what this is getting at contentment. But to speak very clearly, contentment comes not just by focusing on what you have versus what you don't. That's a very secular way of contentment. And it almost creates this mediocre pursuit of Jesus. Contentment isn't just focus on what you have and not what you don't. Contentment is continuously apply faith to your heart. That's contentment. The continuous application of faith to my heart. Faith in what? Faith in the fact that God provides richly. Thus, I can ask God to provide richly. That's faith. Faith in the fact that God provides everything for joy. So I could say, God, help me to find joy even in this circumstance, which isn't joyous at all. That's faith. And when we regularly, continuously apply that faith to our heart, what we find is contentment in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, in joy or in sorrow. That late, have you ever been to a wedding? Have you ever heard that before? This is why in Ephesians, when, when, when Paul starts to charge husbands and wives, he gets to the end and he says, I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about the relationship God wants to have with other humans, the gospel. So that when you are in a wedding environment and you're saying those words, what you start to realize is, wait a second, this is what I'm supposed to be saying to God and what God is saying to me. That there's contentment in a relationship. I love it. So, so, so there's this caution. Avoid. Avoid arrogance. Resist it. Resist the seduction of riches because they're uncertain. Don't be blockbuster in 2019. 
doesn't exist anymore. Netflix came and eradicated that bad boy because riches are uncertain. Caution, this glorious statement starts the call of action, set it on God who richly provides everything for joy and it leads to expanding the action that we should take once our hope is set on God. He says this, they, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That, that first part, 18, is, is very pragmatic. It's not unclear. But you know what I've realized before I get into it? If you're a Christian, you know what, you, you know what you're good at? If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're good at this, but not the same way. But if you're a Christian, you know what you're good at? You are good at spiritual gymnastics. You know what spiritual gymnastics are? So I have a daughter, and she is, I mean, she, she's, she's like a little miniature Simon Biles. And part of me is like, man, that's kind of cool. Part of me is fearful. That's why I burned all the hula hoops in our house. They don't exist anymore. And I, mean, it did, I did. All right? And so like, because she could move her body, and she's just, she has gymnastic swag. So she could bend and she could contort and she could just move her body to accomplish a lot of things. You know what I learned about Christians? We're spiritual gymnasts. And what we start to do is we start to bend and we move our body to avoid obedience. And so it's like, man, you know, that's not what that really says. And so we'll just, that's spiritual gymnastics. It's like, it makes no sense at all. But every single Christian is good at it. Because every human is good at it. We're good at the gymnastics to avoid doing what we don't really want to do or doing what we don't really believe in or what we only believe in partially. So I just want to read this again clearly. So, you know, I'm not making stuff up. This is Greek, Hebrew, whatever you want. This is what it says. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What he's getting at is those who are rich in this present age, after avoiding these things, these snares that he's going to bring, he brought up earlier in 1 Timothy, after fixing their heart continuously on God, seeing him, having a rich view of him, which is rewiring their hearts, they're ready for action, which is generosity. It's generosity. And he gives categories of generosity. He gives the first category, which is good works that they should do stuff that produces the common good. What you see throughout the scriptures is the common good is meant to be a foretaste of future glorious good that's tied to Jesus. So then he says you should, you should do stuff for the common good, good works, first category. That's resources, time, talent, treasure for good works. But then he gets to this latter part that they should be generous, emphasizing that, and ready to share. That implies financial generosity. So one is social generosity, the other is financial generosity. And here's what I know. There's a generational gap between the two. Because we define generation or generosity by generation. So generosity for people who were the boomers is often financial. And do you know why? 
because of 1929 and what took place. Black Tuesday, stock market crash, and people started killing themselves. And then you lead it to the Great Depression and then World War II. And then what you start to realize is, man, like, how dare we hold on to this? And so there's a greater level of financial generosity amongst baby boomers. I'm not a baby boomer generation. Generation X, millennials, which is me, and Generation Z, which is the ones who are a little bit younger than me and going, and then even my kids. You know how we start to define generosity? Philanthropy. So we'll join the Peace Corps. We'll create Toms. Have you ever heard of Toms? Like Christians got a hold of Toms in like 2000. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They was like, oh my gosh. Like you buy a shoe and somebody else is going to get a shoe? Yes, I'm going to do that. It was very fascinating. That's what we do. So, so, so philanthropy. And then even now in, this, in this, this other generation, Generation Z, it's influence. So I won't necessarily give my money. I won't necessarily give all of my time. But I'll leverage some of my influence. I'll retweet that. I'll repost that. Am I lying? Detect a lie. And you know what's fascinating about that? Regardless of what generation you're in and how you're wired towards generosity, it's to be celebrated. If you are more geared to be generous with your money, praise God for that. If you're more wired to be philanthropical with your, with your resources, doing good, praise God for that. And if you're more wired to leverage your social influence, praise God for that. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to put those things against each other. And we don't want to do this exercise, again, it's a type of spiritual gymnastics, where we justify how good we're doing by what we're doing and what we're not doing. That's dangerous. You don't want to just justify where you are by omission and activity. You really want to start to deal with the heart because all of these are necessary. Good works and financial generosity. In fact, what you start to see is wherever you're lacking, that's actually where your eyes and your ears and your heart is supposed to be more attentive towards. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, you know, you tithe, but it's not really from the heart. And even if you tithe, you actually neglect the finer things like justice. Get busy. Serve the Gentiles. But he didn't say that you neglected justice to this one woman who gave all that she had that was poor. And he didn't say, no, don't give because you don't have a lot. But man, you've given more than anybody because you gave from a place of generosity. And so, essentially, He's creating this design for money from God's perspective, that God's design for money, resources, is that it would further joy when used appropriately and would further his mission when given generously. That God's design for money would be the furtherance of joy and the furtherance of mission, which, by the way, aren't mutually exclusive. That's what this gets to. It's a call to action. It's to be free from a surplus mentality that says, I'll only give generously out of discretionary. It's to be freed from a scarcity mindset that I really can't enjoy life because I don't have enough. It's to be free from those extremes and to be able to further into joy 
and further into mission. It's the call to action. And all of that leads to this case that he makes, which is where we're going to close. It's going to be a long close. I'd say this is where we're going to close. Amen. <laughs> Verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Man, it, and I've read this. I've preached this before, but it hit me differently when I was preparing. Can I, can, I, can I make an illustration that may be sensitive to some of us? It goes back to this whole Act 17 mentality and what I'm realizing that exists amongst this current generation, which is chronological arrogance. Like we just look back at people in the past and we're like, man, if I was back then, I wouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. And I see this specifically amongst minorities and somebody famous made a statement. If I was in slavery, I would have revolted. You don't know that, actually. But there's just like this chronological arrogance in the way that we look at the past. But it's God's grace that we were born where we were, when we were. But imagine if you were born in Civil War America and you were born in the South. Imagine being born in that moment and you saw the writing on the wall which is the North was going to win. Praise God. Okay? You saw the writing on the wall, but all you had was Confederate money. Couple of days and definitively years, that money is going to be worthless. Right? What would you do with it? Would you burn it? That would be foolish. Right? Some people might say, man, I'm going to burn it as a sign of, uh, amen, get busy if you want it. You know what you probably do? You'd probably exchange it. You'd invest it. You would use it in light of what was coming. Does that make sense? And that's what he says in that first part. He says, they are to store up treasures, laying up a foundation for the future. They are to leverage everything in this present age for the age to come, because what's in this present age is going to fade eventually. In fact, it's sooner than later. And he says, store up foundation. So he says, invest well. Get a good ROI. That's return on your investment. Get a good ROI by leveraging this world for the world to come. But he's not just saying invest well or invest eternally because that's just good business. Although that's true. He's saying it because by doing so, you're experiencing something. Life. That's what he says. He says, you do all of this so that you may take hold of. Take hold of means experience. And he says, that which is truly life. I um, just came back from Texas not too long ago. Um, and within um, this Thanksgiving buffet, there was sweet tea. And I was like, man, come on. And this sweet tea was really sugar with water in it. That was the sweet tea. And it stood out to me because I've been in Miami with the opposite, which is water with stevia in it. And I'm like, what is this? 
And what I've seen for this purpose is neither of those are really sweet tea. And I know that sucks for some of you who's in the South, right? That's just, it's, it really is just sugar with water. Kool-Aid, you know, just sugar with water. But if you're on the other side, you know, you, you may be part of that bland crew. That ain't it either, all right? It's these extremes. But in the middle, there's something that is true. Track it with me. <laughs> Like how I brought that together, the middle, there's something that's true. What's true is experienced not by what's added to it or what's taken away, but what's actually there. That's the truth. True tea. Now, true tea may not be good. True tea, you may be like, I need some stevia. I need some. But with God, what he's saying is life, true life. He said, ha, see how I did that? Life that doesn't have the in it. Or in a little bit, it's really good, it's really true, it's really life. And the case he makes is glorious because he attaches that which is truly life, not to individuals, but to the one who gives it, God. Have you ever noticed why it feels good to be generous? Have you ever noticed that? That you're like, man, like, actually when I'm generous, it it feels good. Do you know why? It's not because of a shame culture. Shame, shame. Shame, like, you know what I'm saying? Where if you don't do something, like, people make you feel less than, so you feel like you got to do it so that you don't feel less than, and now you get this weird good that's based on, that was from a TV show. And it, like, no, that's not why. That's not why it feels good to be generous. It feels good to be generous because you were made in the image of God. And the image of God is a generous one. And the more we exist in the image that we were made for, the more we find that which is truly life. That's across the board. But as it pertains to generosity, that's a profound statement. It says, essentially, it says this, a generous life is the life that you were truly made for, the life that you truly want, and the life that is truly life. That, like, that is, that is a, a generous life. It's what we're made for. It's what's actually life. It's life we want. And he says, you can have that if you see generosity the way God does. Furthermore, he builds it out. And he says this. He says, if this is all true, then generosity is not something God wants from us. It's something God wants for us. So that we can experience a life which is truly life. That God is not trying to get money out of our pockets. If anything, he's trying to get idols out of our hearts. That which we set our hopes on. Not like, man, you know what, man? Yeah, I know Psalm 24.1, like I got all the riches in the world. But man, yo, can you hook me up with like 10% of your money today? Like Like that's not the picture of God. It's, man, do you know the life I have for you, that when I sat back in eternity looking at this present age and I saw all of the things I want you to experience for joy, I said the greatest pathway to experience that would be through generosity. Something I want for you, not from you. Close with this application. There's two things that I want for us this coming week, the weeks to come. The first is that we would aspire to use God as a standard, not ourselves or someone else.
that in all of life, but specifically with generosity, that we would aspire to use God as the standard, not ourselves or someone else. And we are prone to use ourselves or someone else as the standard. When we use ourselves or someone else as the standard, we become self-righteous. Such and such isn't, they should be, and it's really tied to us. And it's, it's just not wise because we are this, we are roller coaster people. I'm not a good standard at all. And neither are you, but God is. And so even as you start to examine generosity, is, is your generosity in lockstep with the God who gave it all? That's the gospel. That he didn't withhold his own son. He didn't withhold what was most precious for what was most necessary life. Aspire, that we would aspire to use God as a standard and not yourself or someone else. The next application is that we would build rhythms that reflect where you want to be and not where you are. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. When I say build rhythms, essentially it's reverse engineering the future. It's taking the future, a dream, and working backwards and saying, what are the things I need to do to get there? And there's a statement, two statements I need to make in light of this application. The first is this. Good intentions do not overpower bad habits. And what happens often is we have the best of intentions with the worst of habits. And so we'll feel for a moment, but because our habits are trash, we'll just go in a circle and then we'll blame other people for the circle that we're still in. But good intentions mixed with meaningful actions create life. And the way that we have that mixture, that combination of good intentions and meaningful actions is by exploring our hearts with the gospel and leaning into community and accountability. People can be honest with us and people can walk alongside us. And so do not be seduced by the lie that intentions more than decisions determine your destination. That is not the way this thing works. That is not real life. So that's a statement I need to say for that application of building rhythms that reflect where you want to be, not where you are. The second thing I need to say is something that I, I, I mean, I'm losing sleep over. I've shared this with several people. I've, I've shared it during our volunteers anchor meeting last week, and I'm going to share it now. And the reason we went to Texas um, is because um, my, my wife's uh, uncle is passing away. And it's a hard time for us as a family. And I'm watching my wife be strong through the midst of it. And she's just a beast. Uh, but while we were there, I'm watching this man who knows death is coming. Not try to avoid it. Not deny it, but to still choose life and joy. And it was so profound for me. He loves Jesus, and he stared at eternity with a smile on his face. And it's not eliminating the difficulty of where he is, but it's enhancing the truth of who God is. 
And in the midst of this weird emotional Thanksgiving, another one of my relatives looked me in the face and he shared this story with me. It was, it was a statement somebody made at a person's funeral. There was this pastor who passed away a few years back, famous pastor. And, and one of the people made the statement at his funeral. He said, when you're born, you look like your parents. But when you die, you look like your decisions. And I have not been able to shake that. Yeah, that wasn't for me. I wish it was for me. Yeah, but that was not for me at all. Can't shake it. Can't shake it at all. And all it's been doing is confronting me with that question of decisions. Are the decisions I'm making now really reflective of where I want to be? Are they, are they really reflective? Or, or am I going to continue lying to myself and pretending other people don't see it? Am I going to continue to lie to myself and pretend God doesn't see it? Why, like, why would I even do, like, why would I do that? But if there's a place that I really desperately want to be, I will get there not just by intentions, but by building rhythms, which is decisions. Generosity is where we all need to be. Not because God wants something from us, but because he wants something for us, which is life, which is truly life. Will we have the courage, the courage, the spiritual fortitude to examine our hearts and make decisions for where we want to be, which is life. Pray with me, Jesus. Um, would you make it so? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, we're getting ready to um, enter into a time of communion. Um, as, the, as a team comes up, leaders come up, and we enter into this time of communion. I must say that I am fairly certain that these next few weeks are going to be very difficult for me in terms of preaching because it's very exposing and it's one of those things where this is what they say you're supposed to talk about. And this is the one of those things where everybody expects you to talk about. And so I'm, I'm wired to be a contrarian and to push against that. But in my wiring, there's sin. And because of the ways that we've neglected this as a church, we've handicapped all God could do in and through us. We're just not going to do that. And one of the ways God is really challenging me through this series is by reminding me of the gospel. And there's this passage that really becomes one of the cornerstones for the gospel that's said over and over and over again. It's like one of the first passages you memorize in like little kids' church. I didn't grow up in a church, so I don't really, but this is what they tell me. And it's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave And the reason that's been freeing me is I don't have to motivate or manufacture a thing. I just have to encounter love. And then I'm resting. 
I don't have to motivate or manufacture a thing to get us to where we need to be in any scenario, specifically this one. Because motivation comes from love. That's all I get to do is bring firewood and pray. And as we enter in, would we see that the greatest firewood that we could ever bring is ourselves. And Jesus gave of himself so that we could enter in. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate in communion. That's what we remember. And that's what we turn to for strength. So at your own leisure, wherever you are, remember there was a night where he was betrayed and abandoned. And he didn't run from that moment. He ran towards it with a smile on his face, with hope in his eyes, with a heart for the future, a bride. You and I, come when you want.